How does one go from CEO to activist, from fighting in the suites to fighting in the streets? Learn from Jason Flom as we learn about his mission to fight for justice. If you believe we can change the narrative, if you believe we can change our communities, if you believe we can change the outcomes, then we can change the world. I'm Rob Richardson. Welcome to Disruption Now. Welcome to Disruption Now. I'm your host and moderator, Rob Richardson, where we host on this show uh, guests and narratives that disrupt common narratives and constructs. And I can tell you this, Jason Flom definitely does that. He used to be CEO of Atlantic, and now he's an activist fighting to make sure we have a more just criminal justice system. He is the uh, producer and founder of Wrongful Conviction Podcast, False Confession Podcast, as well as Righteous Conviction Podcast. He's just the podcast king. And he went from that. Uh, he went. He used to be uh, doing everything on the corporate level. Now he used it. He uses his voice to fight for people, specifically fighting for. Uh, wrongful wrongful convictions and things that are happening all day every day to many americans but a lot of us don't see it and we're going to make sure that you see it and learn about it today so we're going to listen to jason and hear what he has to say and it's just so interesting to me that we see these repeated injustices go over and over and over again within our society within america but yet it's still underappreciated how unjust how unfair how cruel our system is but as you're going to see on the other side, we need to do more about it. And I hope you you come out more informed and more engaged than ever. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. Eight hours of sleep, six espressos, one nice long walk with the dog. And I'm here with you. So, you know, I'm living the dream. Good to see you, brother, man. And uh, always great connecting with another uh, warrior in justice. I think you're more in the calls than me. Uh, I do all I can, but you've dedicated all of your time to this. So I just want, want to let you know that we appreciate it. And I really want to dive into how you got into this because you 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 went from the corporate suites to fighting in the streets, as I said earlier. So like how <laughs> how does one make this transition? Because you, you were CEO of Atlantic Records, I believe that's that's correct. And now you have a podcast that's all about making sure you are exposing the uh, recurring injustices that happen within our cr- criminal justice system, so-called justice system. And that's all you do now. So talk to me about that transition from that life to this life because that's quite the transition yeah listen i still have one foot squarely in the music business i mean people identify me more now with the sort of good work that i do than with the good work that i've done on the music side i guess you could say um good with a capital g as opposed to lowercase g right um but yeah it's funny rob because you know whenever i do public speaking which i do a lot and i really enjoy it uh, i speak at corporations law schools ivy league schools i've opened for tony robbins i've spoken in a maximum security prison in uganda i mean everything in between um but i always start off by saying this is a story of my crazy journey from wannabe Jimi hendrix to chairman and ceo of three of the biggest record companies in the world but more importantly from being a drug addicted college dropout to a pioneer in criminal justice mm. reform because it is more important at the end of the day you know um you're in the arts and you know you're a creator and you know you do incredible work and that's great i'm on the other side right i'm on the side of once i realized that i was never going to make it as the world's best guitar player i was like all right screw it then i'm you know because my listen rob my dad had told me i never can do an interview without mentioning my dad because he was my hero and my mentor and he told my brother and i he said listen do whatever you want to do. Try to be the best at it, but just make the world a better place because there's no other meaning to success, right? That, that's the only definition that, that matters. So I was like, 
okay, pops, uh, let's see what we can do about that. You know what I mean? And then, like I said, when I realized I wasn't going to be the best guitar player, I decided maybe I could make it in the music industry and help other people become superstars. And that's how it worked out, which gives me the ability to then go and make that transition that you talked about. And I fell in love with this cause or I fell in line with this cause or I became obsessed with this cause. Before you get there, I want you to get there. I just want to take one small point about what you said that when you focused on your early in your career, you were focused on music and thought you were going to be this Jimi Hendrix player. And I just have a lot of similar similarities to your path. Like I, like I wanted to be the next Michael Jordan at that time, right? Like just work hard and just thought like, uh, you know, I was like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to use that as my platform to change the world. Uh, a couple, couple, couple problems with that. I ended up breaking my knee. I can't, I have nowhere near the athletic ability of a Michael Jordan or anybody else. So I actually pivoted too. It's, it's, it's amazing how, um, how life can take us towards the right path if we're not focused on it being exactly what we think it has to be. So I just thought that was an interesting point. Uh, life is never linear, but okay. So talk about this transition you made to your, now you've, you've, you realize you weren't going to be Jimi Hendrix, but you did have success within the music business several times over being a CEO in three different companies. And, so, and, and now you've made this transition. Talk more about this transition that you have now. Yeah, I like that life is never linear. It's just like my dad used to say, trees don't grow straight to the sky, right? They kind of, you know, except for redwoods. But anyway, yep. so yeah, um, you got to kind of keep your mind open to those possibilities, I feel like, and because because life does take crazy twists and turns for all of us. But anyway, um, it all started in 1993 when I read an article in the newspaper about a kid that was serving 15 years to life for a first offense for a nonviolent first offense cocaine possession charge in a maximum security prison in New York State. And I know people are saying, uh, yeah, that, that doesn't make any sense. What are you talking about, Flom? But the fact is, it was a nonviolent first offense cocaine possession charge for which he was serving 15 years to life under the Rockefeller drug laws in New York state. Yep. And it was in the paper because his mother had been trying to get clemency for him from governor Mario Cuomo and had gotten the, had you know, gotten letters from some prominent people and had been turned down. So that's why it made it into the newspaper. Otherwise he would have been just another anonymous dude lost in the system. And uh, so I read this and I was like, what the, I don't know if I can curse on here, but you know, you can cuss as much as you want. Go ahead. Okay. So what the fuck? I was like, I didn't know anything <laughs> about these mandatory sentencing laws. I did know that I had been a drug addict as a kid, you know, I'd gone to rehab when I was 26 and I was very well aware that I had never had, um, you know, I had had some scary interactions, but never anything serious with the, you know, uh, with the justice system. And that was because of the color of my skin and the zip code I lived in. And I knew it. So, I just thought, you know, I'm not a religious guy, but there before the grace of, of some higher power goes, go I, right? right? And so I thought, if I got to do something. I had no idea what to do, but I figured I got to do something. So I don't have any legal training. I'm not even a college graduate. I was just a mid-level music executive at the time. And so... So this was before you were, uh, you were still in the music business at this time when you, when you hit the spark. Yeah, and this is where the worlds collide, right? So... I knew one criminal defense attorney at the time. Now I know hundreds of them, but I knew one because he represented two of the artists I had discovered, Stone Temple Pilots and Skid Row, and they were getting arrested like <laughs> practically weekly, you know? So I had him on speed dial. His name was Bob Colleen, rest in peace. So yeah. I called Bob and I asked Bob to, to, if he could help with this case. Um, 
you know, by now I had spoken to the the mother of the of the incarcerated guy. Uh, Shirley is her name, and she had basically given up hope uh, after getting turned down. He had been in for over eight years already. He happened to be the same age as I was at the time, so I really saw myself in him. You know, um, and because I had been in the wrong place at the wrong time so many times, and it could have happened to me. So I'm sure a lot of people are nodding their heads at home right now, going, mm, "Yeah, that couldn't be yep. me too." So. Because, you know, you don't have to be deep in the drug trade. You could just be, in, you know, like I used to get my Coke when I was <laughs> addicted to that stuff. You know, I used to get in the car with the guy who was selling it. He used to drive around and make yep. all these. And had we been pulled over and all that stuff was in the car, it, you know, and you both go, it's not mine. It belongs to both of you. That's the end of it. You know, it doesn't yep. matter if it's his car or you're a passenger or you just got that, in. That, that's something people do not understand. I don't think have full appreciation for how just crazy our drug our drug laws are to to your point right that i think is really just important to stop at right if you're in the car you cannot it, you cannot you 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 don't even have to be doing the drugs if somebody else that has the drugs in your car you're both liable like it just they just assume that you you both are guilty and you both go to jail like it's it's it, it, it doesn't even matter what you did and especially true if you're black but go ahead yeah, it could, it, it could be five of you, and it, and it's the, all the drugs belong to all of you. It's like yep. unless somebody goes, oh no, those are mine, which nobody ever does, right? No. So, so anyway, um, so Bob agreed to take the case pro bono, even though he said it was hopeless. And somehow or other, he calls me up about a month later. He found some loophole. He said it won't work, but I'm going to try. And then another five, six months after that. We end up in a courtroom in Malone, New York. I mean, this is so long ago that I still had a mullet. Okay, I mean, I'm not even kidding about this. And I wish I was. And I got the pictures to prove it. And so they bring this kid into the courtroom in shackles, right? Like he's Charles Manson or something, right? I mean, he's got his legs chained. You know the drill. I do. And I'm like, wait, isn't this a nonviolent first offender? Doesn't it seem like a little bit of overkill, you know? But anyway. Arguments go back and forth. I have no idea what's going on, like, because I'm new at this, new as could be. And I'm sitting there holding his mother's hand, Shirley, um, her husband, Stan, is there on the other side, probably squeezing her hand so tight I can't imagine. And uh, the judge bangs a gavel down and sends the kid home. And I was like, what? Like, I, like when he when the judge made his ruling, Bob comes kind of scurrying over, right? And I'm like, Bob, what ha- what, what just happened? And he goes, We won. I was like, What? He's like, We won. I was like, Get the fuck out of here. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. So I was like, Oh my god, I have a superpower. You know, like I I didn't I couldn't I didn't have a superpower to play guitar. We know that. Right. I definitely can't dunk a basketball with my three inch Jewish vertical leap. So I was like, Okay, and maybe I'm exaggerating that too, but. Um, so I was like, I want to do more of that. That was a yeah. feeling that I wanted to have again and again and again. Yeah. I mean, when we, when we talk about these laws, it, it's, it's crazy how fast we got here and just how absurd the laws are. And so you mentioned, you implied about cocaine, powder cocaine versus crack cocaine. And the fact that you'd have to get, you know, when these laws were first created, what you, you think you had to have a hundred times the amount of powder cocaine than it was crack cocaine, you'd very little bit of crack cocaine. And we know crack cocaine was for, <laughs> poor people and black people and powder cocaine were more usually white people and other establishments. Like I, I would be, I remember this in law school and, and I didn't use drugs. I'm not judging anybody, but I didn't, but I remember literally going into parties and people would literally be just be 
inhaling cocaine. <laughs> and it was it was something that people knew was happening. The clubs knew were happening. Officers would be there and it'd be no big deal. Right. And they would just let it go. But, you know, everywhere you go uh, in, in certain neighborhoods, your your neighborhood is occupied and you are assumed to be guilty no matter what. And you get searched every single second. You have very little rights. And I think people are really surprised that this happened. And I, and what I what I what I do know is that I think during the George Floyd uh, murder, when that happened in the protest and people saw the amount of interactions and the amount of power that our criminal justice system has is to suppress people's rights. It surprised some people like I, and, and so I, I hope people were awakened by that fact, but I would like to ask you what facts surprise you, what shocking fact or, or reality surprised you the most about our criminal justice system that just really hit it for you? Like, wow, I can't believe this is actually happening in America. Like what, what stood out for you? What stands out for you? I'll throw a couple of statistics your way um, that you may be familiar with, but I bet a lot of people that are listening are probably not. No matter how woke you are, these statistics will probably shock you. The one that probably is as mind-blowing as any of them is that the United States incarcerates Black people at six times the rate per capita of South Africa during apartheid. So let's just chew on that for a second. Chew right? on that for one minute. Say that one more time because I think it was really important. Yeah, so the United States incarcerates black people at six times the rate of, of South Africa during apartheid. Of course, that's per capita. Now, you know, as crazy as that sounds, when you put, you know, when you drill down inside the numbers and you look at the fact that we have, you know, 4.4% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's prison population, right? And I'm going to say these slow because it's a lot, but. We also have what's inside of those numbers is we have 33% of the world's female prison population. So imagine that if you're a woman in prison in the world, there's a one in three chance you're locked up in a cage in America. Mm -hmm. And a lot of women, a big percentage of women in America in prison are in prison for crimes that never even happened. And that's a scary enough statistic. But, you know, then you look at like, any way you look at it, right? Like we have more people in prison for drugs than everyone in prison in Western Europe for everything. And they have a wow. lot more people than we do. We have more people in prison than Russia and China combined, okay? We have more people in jail who haven't been convicted of anything but are too poor to post bail than everyone locked up in a cage in India. Wow. Okay, India's got about four times as many people as we do, between three and four times as many people as we do. And we've got more people, get that, I'm gonna say it again, more people that haven't been convicted of a crime that are right now, while we're sitting here having this conversation, they are stuck in a disgusting, violent, dirty, um, nightmarish hellhole separated from their children, from their family, from their church, from their school, from their job, from sunlight, from exercise, from their dog or cat, if they have one, from every, every basic human need is unmet in these jails, which in most cases are more violent and more oppressive, more, more, you know, more punitive than maximum security prisons because there's no recreation. 
There's no law library. There's no school. There's no anything except for anger and, and frustration and a powder keg of people mixed up together, people who are violent, people who are nonviolent, people who are innocent, people who are guilty, people who are gang members, people who are not. And I, and I, I use gang members very cautiously yeah. because we tend to categorize people as gang members that aren't, you know, so many times in America. We, and, and we can't have a I can't throw, I, I can't let myself throw that around loosely. So. Yeah, but, you know, I want to get back to something else, Rob, because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to bog everybody down with statistics. But, you know, that feeling that I had all those years ago, 1993, when Stephen Lennon was sent home, um, you know, it, it's it's a feeling that I wish I never had to have because I wish there weren't all these people in prison and we didn't have to go get them out. And I hate that I can, you know, only help one or two or 10 or 50 at a time or whatever it is, because the problem is so vast. Yeah. Um, I literally wish I could take the entire prison system in this country and turn it upside down, shake it and everybody go home, go back to your life, go try to rebuild, you know, what's left of it. And let's 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 go and and then scoop back up the people who are really dangerous. Of which, well, right? Because because the goal of our prison system is supposed to be to refor- to help reform and rehabilitate and integrate people into society, not to create this caste system that separates people from us completely and forever. Which is essentially what our justice system does. I mean, it it's a, it almost not almost it creates two different levels of say these people and these people. You're not as equal as humans as us. You're it's creates an apartheid. It really does. Yeah. And it's, it's designed to do exactly what you just said. And also to protect society from people who are truly dangerous. That's what it's the supposed perc- to do, but that's not what it does. No, <laughs> that's not perc- what we do. Yes. Because the percentage of people that are in prison in America that are truly dangerous is a tiny, tiny fraction of the overall number. And it wasn't always like this. Either. Yes, I mean, it wasn't. It was- it, right. And we got this way through politics in some way, which is what I like to talk about, right? In terms of it became politics and economics, right? And economics, which I tie the two together very much so, but politics and economics and what's convenient. Uh, Let's talk about that a little bit, specifically what you see towards the systemic solution. And more importantly, when you're talking to people, and I know you've talked to presidents and I like to have some conversations about that. Like you've talked to presidents and dignitaries about this. So I think you had a really interesting conversation with Clinton I love to I love to figure out like I love to talk through when you when you have these conversations with leaders like presidents, you can talk about Clinton or whoever else you want. How does this conversation go and what's usually like preventing them from really understanding what's happening here? Um, I want to talk about that. But before we do, I want to just uh, I wanted to reference back to that 1993. Sure. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Because last night or yesterday afternoon, I got a text from an attorney for a guy named Vincent Simmons, who was on my podcast, Wrongful Conviction is the podcast. And Vincent, one of the more powerful interviews I've ever done. He's been in prison for 44 years in uh, Louisiana. Totally innocent. Um, He's there um, because he was a classic uh, to kill a mockingbird type of case, I guess you could say. He was accused by two um, young white sisters of um, all sorts of horrendous acts against them. Yeah. Um, It was abundantly clear from day one that they made up the story. They didn't even report it till weeks later. 
Um, and, you know, what seems to be the case is that they were um, being, they, they were uh, engaged in these activities with their cousin uh, who was older. Yeah. Uh, and they didn't, you know, they didn't want to fess up to that. So, you know, this is, it's like I said, this story is as old as time. The, um, the cousin's uh, brother, I believe, was one of the investigating officers. Uh, Laborde is a family down there, a very powerful family in this, in this area. And so obviously he wasn't going down for it. And Vincent, when he went to the police station and wouldn't confess, was shot in the police station by the officers. Yeah, they shot him in the police station and missed his heart by an inch. You can't make this shit up, right? And he, of course, was sentenced to life without parole. He's been in, like I said, since, God, let's see, 44 years. What even is that? You probably, you aren't even close to 44 years old yet, right? So No, I'm getting I mean, close. <laughs> you're getting close. But, but it's just, it's unimaginable. So I got a text yesterday um, from the... Uh, attorney justin bonus who said thought you may want he sent me a, a clip from instagram he said thought you may mm. want to watch that you have been a major part in getting us some traction bro with five exclamation points god willing vincent gets out soon got a hearing on the 14th maybe you and vincent get an early present he was on cbs this morning i'm getting the chills where the sisters admitted that they made it up wow okay so it should be instant we should be done we should be done, but you know, it, ain't, it, it don't work that guy. No, like, we, you know, we know, we know. But now, know. listen, I mean, we've got too many cases where, you know, the evidence has completely fallen apart, and yet the person remains in prison where there's DNA that proves they're innocent, where there's the, the, the witness, the only witness is, you know, changes their story, whatever it is, it doesn't even, they still keep you in if they can. So, um, so back to your question. So, you, well, actually, anyway, I want to, yeah. you come back to that question because uh, we'll come back to the question about the presidents. And I'm going to separate that. Let's come back to that because I want to go down this rabbit hole of of some of these injustice there's some of these unjust cases since we're we're there right now um i want to talk about some cases in ohio if that's okay yeah please yeah um and then we're gonna i do want to come back i'm actually gonna ask you questions about the president and kim kardashian but since we're on this part of the subject of really discussing some of the, these specific facts i want to talk about i would be remiss being from ohio and having a good amount of our audience from cincinnati cleveland and uh columbus to not address what's going on here in ohio so um there are a couple of Ohio cases I definitely want that I think people should just hear and understand the basics of what's going on, just to give you some sense that of how bad things are. And, you know, there's, there's one that the, there's, there's a couple I want to go over that I know you're working on. So the Kevin Keith case, as well as the John Jones case, and I'll let's start with Kevin Keith. And I think just explaining the facts of what's happened in that case and just how outrageous it was. I think people just need to hear because it doesn't even sound believable. It sounds like something you'd see on a, Netflix drama, but this is the United States of America's criminal justice system. So Kevin Keith, like, tell us, tell us a little bit about him. Yeah. It's the United States of Ohio right here. I mean, the, um, and not to pick on Ohio, but you know, cause you can pick on Ohio when it comes to this. It's fine. Yeah. Look, Ohio is, is bad, bad, bad. There's a lot of States that are terrible, but you know, Ohio is, is not, is not a, um, is not a beacon of light in this area by any stretch of the imagination. Kevin Keith's case, this goes back, God, about probably close to 30 years now. And what happened was uh, there was a um, an individual who was uh, apparently running a uh, robbery and drug ring with some local cops. And the feds were investigating it. 
And this guy came to find out this investigation was going on and went to the home of somebody who he believed to be the informant to kill him. Uh, fortunately for that guy, he wasn't home. But unfortunately, six members of family were in the home at that time. And all six of them were shot. Three died, three lived. It was a, you know, gruesome situation. Obviously, three of them were children. Um, and the issue seems to have been that the authorities were not in any mood to arrest the actual perpetrator who I believe was known to them at the time because he had information on them that right. could have been extremely uh, un inconvenient to come out, right? So they had to get a scapegoat. Obviously, when a case like this is high profile as it was, you got to get somebody, right? I mean, there's a saying in the, in the uh, legal system in this country, a body for a body. In this case, it was a body for three bodies and three other grievously wounded people. So... They picked up a local that they, they were just basically looking for a black guy they could arrest from what I can tell. There was a guy named Kevin Keith who had moved to town recently and had been picked up for, I think, possession of a joint or something like that, going back to the previous conversation. So he was in their system and uh, he was railroaded in ways that are, you know, uh, really unbelievable. I mean, they made up a phone call that they claimed the victim made from the hospital to uh which identified him. Of course, when the phone records came out, there were no phone calls made from the hospital. Uh, later on, there was someone who called and identified um, uh, a, a, a witness who called up and identified him who claimed to be a nurse from the yep. hospital who overheard the, one of the victims say his name, but the nurse got her own name wrong, right? Like her name was whatever... Uh, let's say her name was Richardson and she said it was Robertson. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, exactly. like she, she almost got it right, but she screwed up her own name. And, and what I understand, and I think the bigger part of this, I can say like, well, my understanding is like the, basically the, the officers had some involvement in this because their, uh, their, uh, their informant is involved in this and, and it, and it actually kind of complicated situation. Like I, I do, I do think it's important for people to understand, like there was like that, that, that officers were involved in this as well and have been, kind of sticking close to the story because of that. I don't know all the particulars and facts on that part of it, but I know we talked about that. And if you remember that part, I think it's important just to just just to just to bring that up. Yeah. I mean, well, they were complicit in this because of the fact that they were operating this this ring. My understanding is they were robbing pharmacies and they were selling the drugs on the streets. Um, you know, knowing what we know about the state of law enforcement in America yep. today, this is probably like they shocking. were literally robbing pharmacy and selling drugs on the streets, the cops involved. I think if people need to know this, that this is crazy, this was going on, but go ahead. That's the part the, that I wanted to bring up. And the corruption goes up higher and higher. And, and then later on, by the way, it turns out that that phone call from the alleged nurse was actually made by the daughter of one of the detectives. So, you know, yeah. the, 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 and they didn't want all of that to be exposed because that's part no, of what's going on here. No, Kevin was a convenient scapegoat. Um, just like Kevin Cooper, who, uh, whose podcast I released today on my, on my feed of wrongful conviction, whose, whose case is as grotesque of an injustice as any I've ever heard of. Um, Kevin has been in prison since 1983 in California since the death. And his case is one of the most disgusting and outrageous um, frame jobs I've ever seen. Again, another home invasion where four people were mur brutally murdered um, and uh, with knives and hatchets and Another kid was left for dead. But uh, 
and where the perpetrators remain free. Because let's not forget when when we go and, and arrest Kevin Keith or we go and arrest Kevin Cooper and we and we prosecute and persecute and convict them, we do it at the expense of public safety because the actual perpetrators are on the street yep. by definition. So, you know, and they go on to commit more horrendous Absolutely. crimes. And there's you know, more and, cases. And, there's John Jones, there's other people. I mean, there's a I just want to just tell people that there's a whole lot going on here in Ohio and, you know, we don't have to spend a, t- a ton of time on it, but I think it's worth some time because John Jones is going through this right now. He is being, he's locked up. You've had him on the show. Definitely. I encourage everybody to watch uh, wrongful conviction. John Jones is in jail for uh, the shaken baby case uh, for another shaken baby case, which has been shown to be defunct science. And it's pretty much like it's it's a clear cut case that he did not do it that there that that's 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 not the the the, the reason the, that his uh, infant died and that he was a good father, none of that mattered because he's black right and because it's just they they found a way they 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 have a narrative in their brain about this is what it looks like shaken baby syndrome, this is what we want to convict and this is how we can do it and we create this pro it's about it's more about a process that's in that's in place and less about justice it's because we go through these things. And we've done this process and it's less about somebody's life like these. The hospital won't release records. I mean, it's just insane that this is accepted as OK in America. So I'm sorry to go on my rant, but it really is. It really is upsetting. Oh, yeah. And listen, John is, a. you know, I feel like it's I've never met the man because I haven't been able to visit him because of COVID. But I've spent hours and hours and hours on the phone with him from prison. And, you know, his case is a shaken baby case. And this is super important because it's Cuyahoga County and Cuyahoga County is one of the most um, incompetent and, um, you know, arguably corrupt uh, forensic labs in the country. It's been a hotspot of wrongful convictions for so many years and shaken baby, you know, these things come in clusters, right? Um, Because you have certain pediatricians or others who will testify again and again in case after case and they'll just one size fits all must if the baby died must be shaken baby now shaken baby syndrome and it's so important that we're here talking about this now because some of your listeners are going to end up on a jury one day right and i encourage people don't throw up don't crumple up and throw out that jury notice you know go and serve on a jury and remember the things that you're hearing today and like i said listen to the wrongful conviction podcast so you can learn what goes on we have a whole episode of wrongful conviction junk science devoted to shaken baby syndrome maybe you could link to it in your bio i will definitely do that but here's the basics of shaken baby syndrome right so we as humans have a very hard time accepting that sometimes babies just die right but sometimes they do there's all kinds of reasons why a baby can die. There's SIDS, right? Sudden infant death syndrome. There's sickle cell trait. There's various different things that cause babies to die unexpectedly without any obvious signs. Now, a doctor, Dr. Guthkelch in England, theorized that there could be a thing where people were shaking babies. This was many decades ago. But his basic thing was he wanted to discourage people from shaking their babies. And so he came up with this thing, but he didn't put out that he thought that this was why babies were dying or anything. And he's later in later years come to uh, regret publicly. He said that he regrets that he sort of put this theory out there. and It's been so badly misused. What we know now is that it's virtually impossible to shake a baby hard enough to rattle its brain without breaking its neck. Perfectly logical, right? But none of these babies have broken necks. And furthermore, no, no one has ever seen 
witnessed or videotaped anyone ever shaking a baby to death. So this is a medical myth in my educated opinion. I believe that you know everyone in prison on shaken baby syndrome needs a new trial and we need to have actual experts. You know, in John Jones's case, we brought in one of the foremost experts in the, in the world, Kate Judson from the Center for Integrity and Forensic Sciences. And she has examined the evidence with, you know, with, with, with you know, rigidity and, and with, with the, whatever you want to call it, with, with, you know, with the standards that should be applied to every one of these cases. She has no bias. She doesn't know John. She wasn't hired by the defense, but she has, you know, volunteered her time to look at this case and come back and said that this baby was not harmed by John or anyone else. The baby just freaking died. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a tragedy on top of a tragedy. I mean, imagine being a parent, losing a child and then being sent to prison uh, wrongly because some official is trying to make their bones or move up the ladder or yeah. whatever, get a conviction. And, you know, and, and it's just, you're just, you're just disposable. And it's fine. And I, I, one more thing I want to say on shaken baby, because it's so important because this is Ohio sure. Sure. where this happens more than maybe anywhere else in the country. It seems like is that, and this is my theory, right? When you get mad at something, right? I don't care what you get mad at. If it's a, if it's your tennis racket because you missed a shot or it's your, uh, you know, if it's a person or a, uh, you know, whatever it might be. We don't shake things when we're mad, right? We throw them, we hit them or we kick them. That is our instinct when we're in a moment of, you know, real rage, right? right. Nobody takes their golf club and shakes it like you golf club you hit a bad shot no people fling it you've seen it on yep, tv right exactly. you shouldn't no one should do that <laughs> but it's a relatively benign activity as long as you don't hit anybody else but the fact is shaking is an unnatural act and furthermore i will say this i ask people to just think logically in case you ever end up on a jury let's say these are normally women that are convicted of shaken baby syndrome caretakers daycare providers or or parents or grandparents now how the hell is a woman, let's say it's a 120 pound woman or whatever. I don't care if she's 175 pounds. I'm 175 pounds. If I want to hold something that weighs about 12, 15 pounds or 20 pounds out at arm's length, you can't shake something if you're holding it close to you. It's impossible. Right. So you want to tell me that somebody is so strong that they can hold something out at arm's length and shake it, which way, this way, this way, your arms. I mean, my arms are tired from holding nothing, you know, try right. to hold your arms out at that length for a minute and I'll give you a yoga certificate. You know what I mean? Because it doesn't, it doesn't make any freaking sense, but these fucking, um, you know, people get up on the stand. They say, I'm a pediatrician. I was licensed by this, that college, blah, 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 and that medical school. And people go, Oh my God, this guy really knows what he's talking about. And the next thing you know, the jury is like, and, and the juries, the, most of the jurors have babies of their own and yeah. they don't want to believe that this can happen from natural causes. Yeah, but, uh, yep, I agree. And part of the problem is, uh, Jason, is that the media has put this false image up about how our system works, right? You, you know, law and order is like, you see prosecutors are always protected. Not to say this don't sometimes, sometimes they do. And, and officers are always protecting. But what they don't show you is that, Sometimes they're just in there just to check the mark. Like, let's just get, we need, I need a certain amount of convictions to move up. And sometimes they don't show you that, you know, our, 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 our police force gets paid more money 
just for convictions. It doesn't matter if people are guilty. They get money. We're incentivized to do injustice in our, in, within our criminal justice system. And so how we've painted things are not accurate, right? And, and so people have, have this image that is false about how things actually work within our system. And I think we have to do everything we can to make sure they see reality as it is, not this false narrative that we made in the media that, you know, all cops are superheroes. No, some cops are superheroes. Some cops are really bad people, right? And, and, and they do some really bad things that we have to see cops, we have to see prosecutors, and we have to see our system as it is, not how we want it to be. No, and the same is true with CSI and these other shows, right? I mean, I think they should do multiple seasons of every one of these shows where they undo all the wrongful convictions that they claimed were right, because it's, it's you're right, it's giving people a false sense of security. I know it's entertainment, and I don't, I, but I don't know whether people can separate that, and I think it does create a narrative. Look, fortunately, in recent years, I think people have started to understand with making a murderer with serial, yep. with so many staircase, uh, with my show. This, wrongful this is the power of podcasting, right? I tell people this is the power of me, of, 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 of what I call web two. It's, it's, it's democratized to some extent voices and media. And that's, that's the power of what we have right now. Go ahead. You know, it's interesting because I have my phone next to me. I probably shouldn't, but you know, this is my life, uh, uh, as it stands, you know, I'm getting a call right now from a guy who's in prison in Mississippi, 23 years into his sentence, uh, a guy named Sharon Edwards, uh, who was sentenced twice for the same crime, which doesn't make any sense. He got 20 plus 20 for this. He, and he's not, he doesn't claim innocence, but he was sentenced to 20 years in state and 20 years in federal for the exact same crime. Wow. Um, and I got a uh, call from a guy in Sing Sing uh, just a few minutes ago, Bruce Bryant, who's as innocent as could be. And then the only other text I have here since we've been on the air from so, someone who I call my little sister, Amanda Knox, is sending me baby pictures, which is great. <laughs> Wow, um, really, so, really, Amanda Knox just sent you a, wow. Yeah, yeah, she's, she really, she's incredible. She's one of my favorite human beings, and her husband, Chris, is just, he's, he's awesome, too. He has a great book called Deliver Us that he wrote a novel. It's funny as fuck. But anyway, um, and the baby's name is Eureka, but that's beside the point. So, um, which I understand that, considering what she's been through. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah, so anyway, so back to Ohio. So look, in Ohio, John Jones is demonstrably innocent. He needs to come home now, today, you know, quick, fast, in a hurry. You're right to say, Rob, that the hospital uh, has refused to release the records that could exonerate him very quickly, I believe, uh, which would show that the baby had a previous medical condition and explain why this um, tragic death happened. Um, Rob, meanwhile, has been separated from his other two kids all these years and has been subjected to, you know, um, the, the, the worst that our prison systems have to offer. Um, and, uh, you know, he, yet he remains um, optimistic. He's not angry or bitter. He just wants to have, you know, this, this wrong righted. Um, and then there's others in the system in Ohio, Anthony Aponovich. Again, Anthony was on my podcast. Uh, Anthony was on death row for almost 35 years before DNA proved he was innocent. And then on a technicality, after 17 months home, they went and scooped him up and put him back in prison on death row, even though the DNA has proved okay. he's innocent. Wait, so DNA proved he was innocent. He came back home and they sent him back to jail for what reason? So... <laughs> Like, I'm yeah. just yeah, like, I know the story, I, but just, yeah. Yeah. If someone's listening while they're driving right now, you might want to pull over because you're going to be like, uh, you might not be able to 
you know, you might lose control of the wheel when you hear this. So Anthony Aponovich was convicted on the flimsiest of evidence of a horrible, horrible crime. And after over well over three decades on death row, the DNA was finally tested. The DNA, which the prosecution had insisted didn't exist. They said it was lost or whatever it was, but he, yeah. you know, there was there was no DNA, but there was. And I guess under mounting pressure, somebody had sent it to a lab to be tested. It came back and showed that Anthony was, in fact, innocent, just as he had said he was all this time. Uh, my understanding is that the prosecution then withheld that evidence, but somebody from the lab leaked it to the defense. And so the defense filed a motion. The motion was granted and Anthony was freed. So they said it was improperly filed. It was improperly received. That's what they're trying to argue, right? Here, here's the technicality, which I, I find stunning, which is that somebody in a position of power figured out, because I guess they had nothing better to do that day, that under Ohio law, the only person that can request the DNA testing is the person who, the, the, the prisoner, right? The person who is incarcerated for the crime. So what they're saying is Anthony should have requested the DNA that they had told him didn't exist. And had he done that, then he could remain free. But since he what? didn't, the DNA doesn't count. It's like, it doesn't count. You know, they're, wa they're waving off the touchdown. You know what, what? I mean? So to speak, right? Wait, I don't even understand. Like, wait, what? So they're saying yeah. because he didn't request it and he should have requested it, how we know to... So why can't he request it now and it's just off? Like, I don't understand why he's, why, why would he still be there then? Yeah, that's a good question. Now, why he couldn't, why he couldn't just flip that now? I don't know. I'll have to ask his lawyer that. He's got a very exactly. good all lawyer. Of this, all of this is crazy. Like, this is just, the point is the man is innocent. They know he's innocent, but they're taking, they're sending him back to jail because we can. That's awful. Right. And, and, and it's not like he hasn't suffered enough. I mean, the man was in prison for, like I said, oh, about three and a half decades. He was home for 17 months. He's sitting on the lawn with his grandchildren. And a you know a squad rolls up like a, he said it was like a dozen cops or something, um, and oh and there's Barry Sheck calling me from the Innocence Project. How do you like that? Um, so yeah, this is just uh, crazy. This is this is this is justice in Ohio. This is justice in America. In, in America, and it's just it's 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 mind blowing. And I definitely want people to get involved with the Ohio Innocence Project. There's also the Alliance for Safety and Justice. There's also um, the Ohio Justice and Policy Center, of course, learned about the wrongful conviction. You heard of these, you heard of these cases, John Jones, Anthony Aponovich, Kevin Keith. There are many, they are, they, are, they are the names that we say today, but there are so many more names that are in Ohio, that are in Mississippi, that are in California, that are in New York, that are in the United States of America, because we decide to run our criminal justice system this way. Uh, one that doesn't care about justice, it cares more about numbers and locking people up. And it's something we must, must change. Uh, I want to get to some other, and we're going to make sure everyone has links in your bio to your all three of your podcasts and all and all these organizations. So and and, let, and let's not leave out Tyrone Knowing, another innocent man on death row in Ohio. I mean, yeah. Tyrone Knowing is, I'm going to say he's as innocent of this crime as I am. Okay, like I, you know, I, and I guarantee I wasn't in Ohio at the time, so don't come after me. <laughs> but no, I mean it's ridiculous. Like th these people are just. They're just there on death row. And we, we interviewed another guy from Ohio who actually was freed after uh, uh, 20 something years on death row. Um, I'll, I'll tell you his name in a minute. I'm going to look it up. But uh, OK, yeah, we'll come so. back to we'll come back to that and let me know. We'll wrap 
I want to talk a little bit about your meeting with President Clinton. I think it was interesting how, how you how you met him. And then I want to also talk about Kim Kardashian very quickly, because I know you've had her on the podcast. So Bill Clinton, yeah. it's kind of your first interaction with the president. Like, how did you how did you end up meeting Bill Clinton? And and and, and what because I, you know, Bill had played a big role in, in a part of this happening in terms of how in terms of some of these laws. But so yeah. you talk, so how did how did you meet with him and how did that work? How, how, how did that conversation go? I'm curious. Well, um, it came about because, uh, you know, when the oh, it was Joe D'Ambrosio. That's the other guy that we interviewed who okay. actually fortunately has been exonerated. He was he's he spent. Um, hold on, I'm going to tell you now. He was Joe Ambrosio. Joe D'Ambrosio. Yeah, he was. Um, <laughs> he, he, listen to this description of the episode from my podcast. Nineteen-year-old Anthony Clan was stabbed to death in Cleveland, Ohio, September of 1988. Two men who had a lot to gain worked with detectives to spin a narrative claiming two other men, Joe D'Ambrosio and Michael Keenan, committed the murder on September 22nd. However, the victim was very much alive the following night. I mean, you can't make this shit up. Anyway, um, so so the meeting with President Clinton uh, came about because, um, you know, this was this was during the um, election, uh, the, the Gore versus Bush election. And my dad had been invited to an event with uh, President Clinton and he couldn't go. So I I got to go sort of you know, I, I wangled my way in there and I managed sure. to get myself a seat at the table with President Clinton. Um, and I got him engaged in a conversation about the drug laws. And he said to me, look, um, you know, I believe if somebody breaks the law, they should go to jail, but they shouldn't spend the best years of their lives there. And I said, yeah, like, let's yeah, talk sounds like a very good brother. political answer. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Just, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I said, let's talk about your brother. And he goes, I know. Yeah, you know, his brother had been arrested for coke. And yeah, I know. Like a year, a year in like a country club prison. And, and then, you know, I said, you know, today he would have been sentenced to a hardcore facility, you know, and spent at least eight years there. And anyway, I said to him, uh, Mr. President, uh, a month ago, you granted clemency to five people. Um, for serving time on these grub crimes. I happen to have a personal letter to you from one of them. I'd like to give it to you now. And so I did. He read part of it at the table, put it in his pocket. And I said, so Mr. President, there's a woman named Amy Popel. And an Arkansas case, but a federal case. And I said, uh, Mr. Po uh, Mr. President, I, uh, what you did for these five people is wonderful, but I know of hundreds of other cases just as bad as those. And he says, you get them to me and I'll sign them. And I was like, everybody at the table was like, what the fuck did he just say? And I was like, what the fuck did he just say? And like, everybody's like, what the fuck is going on here? And so, so then I said the smartest thing maybe I've said in, I don't know, all my born days. I said, well, Mr. President, uh, when you leave here tonight, I don't really know how to go about doing that. Like, I, I'm, how, how am I going to get a hold of you? And he says, well. He points me in the direction of one of his aides who was standing off to the side. He says, follow up with him. He's going to put you in touch with the chief counsel in the Justice Department. You'll have to file this and that. I said, what kind of cases are you willing to look at? And he said, give me non-violent first offenses. Uh, people who have already served at least, you know, some you know, period of time, at least like five years or whatever he said. I don't remember exactly. It's a long time ago. 
And uh, and then I I worked with a what I work with a wonderful organization called Families Against Mandatory Minimums, which is F A M M Fam dot org. Yes. And so I got together with Fam and we compiled a list of cases, uh, federal cases, people that we wanted to advocate for. And long story short, I followed up and followed up and followed up and kept following up. Um, and what it takes with politics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I found every possible person I could think of that could get to. And finally, I found the right person and uh, ended up getting 17 people clemency uh, combined. They were serving. I added it up one day. I think t- together they had 565 years of prison time left to go. Um, you know, one woman, Deanne Kaufman, was serving a mandatory sentence of 85 years in Texas. Um, she was 19 when she was arrested, so she would have been 104 when she was eligible for parole. Uh, she was free to 29. And, uh, you know, and these people have gone on to do wonderful things. It's important to note that none of them have, re- have gotten back, gone back to prison. Yeah. I think a couple, a couple of them were actually innocent. The rest of them were like minor, minor, yeah. you know, Kemba Smith and people like that were minor, minor Serena Nunn. Yeah, I mean, so, listen, they, even when you commit a crime, you don't you don't have to audition for humanity for the rest of your life. Like the bottom line is you the, we're it's supposed to be about rehabilitation, not about separation forever. That's what are, that, that's the most effective. Uh, type I like that of, line. I, I'm, I'm going to steal that. Yeah. Thank you. I don't even know what I said. So whatever I said, you don't have to to audition for humanity the rest of your life. That's good. (laughs) Oh, that's not mine. Uh, That's actually Shakira Diaz is uh, the person with the Alliance for Safety and Justice. That's where I got it from. So she's the one you got to quote the person you met. So um, let me just say uh, one thing. I want to talk about Kim Kardashian quickly. Then I got a couple of rapid fire questions that are just quick rapid fire. So you've interviewed Kim Kardashian on your show and she's been, you know, I guess there's this love-hate relationship with a person that's like Kim Kardashian, but I think there's no doubt she's done a lot for criminal justice reform. Tell me about tell me about how that podcast interview went and what might surprise people about Kim Kardashian. Um, well, first of all, I have nothing but good things to say about her. Um, she's been on my show twice or three times now. Um, one time I just interviewed her at the time when she had, you know, recently dived headlong into this arena. Um, she showed up on time with no entourage, no drama whatsoever, was uh, informed, uh, was focused um, and was uh, just a, you know, dynamite to, to work with. Um, and, you know, the second time, we, you know, I had, um, I had gotten my friend Scott Budnick involved in the Julius Jones case and Scott reached out to Kim and Kim got deeply involved in Julius's case. I mean, more so than anybody realizes. I think that there's, um, I think that, that she has a tremendous, uh, played a tremendous role in helping to prevent his execution. Yeah, she works with um, Sean Holly a lot too. I know Sean Holly's been on the show too. Her one of her attorneys. Okay, I don't know Sean, but I should. But anyway, so just one of her attorneys um, helped her through that case. Yeah, just, so Kim, I, mean, I don't know if it was that case, but helped her through others. I'll talk to you about that in a minute. But go ahead. I mean, Kim went and visited Julius in prison. She went and sat with the governor uh at his home had dinner with his family and that's just the beginning of what she wow. did with julius and she has been 
just a, a you know, I mean, look, the, this work, as you know, Rob, once you start on it uh, and once you, you know, she, like I did, uh, was successful on her first, uh, very first case, that fabulous woman that she was able to get uh, pres- the, 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 Trump. The guy we we used to call president, whose name <laughs> yeah. I won't mention because yeah, okay, I did okay. The person who was formerly yeah. president, yeah, there we go. The the evil orange clown. I mean, we, she managed to get him to, uh, and she took a lot of slack for that. I remember uh, Sean showed the point I was going to make with her lawyer. Sean showed up that helped with that case. Showed up with her to the White House uh, when they did that, and everyone was like trying to give her slack. But I just tell people at the end of the day, listen, she got somebody out of jail that didn't belong in jail. Everything else is bullshit. <laughs> it doesn't really matter if she had to go to the White House to do it. Like, you know, that's fine. As long as people as long as we're serving our purpose, period. The woman's name was Alice Marie Jones. I had the yes. privilege of giving a speech with her in Colorado. She's a fabulous woman, um, you know, and, you know, and Kim, Kim brought her home. And so, you know, look, I, I think we need to, you know, salute her efforts um I, I don't really care what anybody thinks about what else she does with her life it's of no you know it's it's you know i don't think she uses her privilege to, to help that. people and I, I tell everybody has some sort of privilege a lot of people do and it's something that you have and when we when we talk about privilege it's often talked about in the most negative way there's white privilege just male privilege so on and so forth but at the end of the day it's something you have and it's what you choose to do with it you can choose to help people or you can choose to uh, hurt people, or you can try to ignore that you have it and pretend like it doesn't exist, which is also a way of causing harm. But if you're using your privilege to move things forward, that's the greatest thing you can do. So I look at, I salute her as well. And at the end of the day, lots of people who have privilege don't do much of anything. It's about what you do with the, with, with the capacity and the things you've been uh, blessed to have in your life. Okay, two, two final quick questions, just quick responses. What's an important conviction you have or truth that very few people agree with you on? Hmm. Uh, well, I believe that we should um, hmm. I got a couple, but I guess the one I'll focus on because it's on point with what we're talking about is I believe that we should um, not abolish prisons, but that we should um, release and i believe we could do this safely between 80 and 90 percent of the people that are in prison right now yep um and and that we should read that we should devote those resources to um things that actually matter and things that are proven to work to improve public safety and to uplift people instead of uh basically just squashing them and that means everything from fixing the street lights in in the in the ghettos to improving mental health, childhood education, um, you know, picking up the garbage, like everything that we know actually works. That's what we should be doing. And yeah. we could, and with that amount of money that we would save, and we currently spend almost $300 billion a year on police and prisons. And, you know, police are not the answer and prisons are not the answer and they go together. Um, and I think an extension of that is that we should be um, we should be taking uh, the emphasis, uh, you know, that 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 we we should be debunking this myth that police are are you know the I, let me just say this police police equate uh, pol- the 
too many people believe that police provide public safety when in fact they do not prevent crimes. They show up after the crime happened and in too many cases they make it worse. And uh, they do that in a variety of ways. Um, it's all on full display right now. The latest Amir Locke uh, video is so, so profoundly troubling, um, but it's just one of countless incidents. And you know, we hear about the ones that are murdered. We don't hear about all the people that are beaten, that are maimed, that are pepper sprayed, that are, you know, put into, uh, you know, stretchers or wheelchairs or anything else by as a result of police violence. You know, the job of police is violence. And the fact that we use them for traffic stops and mental health and, and you know, they're not trained to, for any of these encounters. So the results are predictable. I mean, and so I think that we, you know, that that's, you know, <clears throat> so that that's, I'd say what my conviction is that, that may be uh, uh, yeah. surprising. Or uh, that's a good one. All right. Final one very quickly. What's a motto you have in life, uh, a Google slogan and why or Google ad slogan, like whatever, this is your billboard. What does it say and why? Um, I mean, one, one would certainly be if you can help help and you can always help. You know? There you go. I mean, that I think that's that's a good one. I mean, look, on my Instagram in the morning, um, you know, I do often do what I call the weather report. And yeah. uh, my Instagram is it's Jason Flom, Instagram and TikTok. It's ITS Jason Flom. Um, if you want to follow me, great. But more importantly, subscribe to the podcast, Wrongful Conviction, on, on Apple or Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. But the only other one I'll leave you with is that I often say on my morning weather forecast, I'll say something like today's forecast is... Um, you know, it, it, today, today's a good day to do something good for someone while expecting nothing in return. I think that's a, a motto we can all apply. Jason Flom, uh, founder of Wrongful, uh, Wrongfully Convicted Podcast, False, Wrongful False, Conviction, Wrongful Conviction, Wrongful Conviction Podcast, False Confession Podcast, and Righteous Conviction Podcast. Those three, uh, and I'm sure there'll be another one. Jason, don't make yourself a stranger. Appreciate you coming on. 